One of the great blessings of being a church member here, um, and especially doing membership interviews, is hearing uh, the different stories of faith in our church. And so I've been encouraged recently uh, getting to know uh, Keenan and Ruth Hurst. Uh, Keenan is the one who led us in our uh, prayer of confession. There he is in the corner. Uh, and it's hard to meet two people with such radically different life experiences that found themselves married together than Ruth and Keenan. And, and you really wouldn't know it uh, unless you understood more of their story. Uh, Keenan uh, had a hunting accident at the age of 12. And while in the hospital recovering from that, uh, eventually, as, as he said, just eventually got addicted to painkillers. And uh, this led him down a really long road of uh, addiction, and uh, which led to uh, imprisonment. And that kind of cycle occurred up until your what, mid-30s, Keenan? Is that right? Uh, and uh, he doesn't rejoice in his story at all. Um, and he completely admits that it's his rebellious heart that led him to this. And meanwhile, Ruth grew up in a home, and she remembers hearing the gospel at the age of five. And at the age of five, she repented of her sins and, and trusted in the Lord Jesus. And so uh, the question that uh, we all should have, and most of us know the answer to, is what can unite two people with such radically different uh, life experiences? I know many of us have become Christians, uh, maybe if you became a Christian after the age of 13, raise your hand. Okay, if you became a Christian, likely when you were 12 and under, raise your hand. Yeah, so maybe like 60, 40 or so, 60% when they were under 12, 40% when they were 13 and above. The thing is, what unites us all is not our life experiences, not who we were, but it's who we are now in Christ by his blood. The blood of Christ poured out for sinners is what makes sense of all this, of this community we have. In Ephesians, Paul wants to give a tired and weary church in an antagonistic world encouragement. Remember the world of the Ephesians. The culture is largely against him. And what is apparent in Acts chapters 18, 19, and 20 is that the people of Ephesus they worship idols, they make their money from selling idols, and they don't want to listen to the logic of the gospel. And they live in a place where the government defends them when it's advantageous to them. I think that sounds very similar to the culture that we live in. In this portion of the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul wants the church to remember who they were so that they could enjoy who they are. He wants them to first remember who they were apart from Christ so they can know who they are in Christ. Church, we're going to see that remembering your plight is vital to your joy in the gospel. Remembering your plight apart from Christ is vital to your joy in the gospel. I was going to preach uh, Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, and that is one unit of text, but we're really going to do that in two parts. This is part number one, and in a couple weeks I'll, we'll do part number two. So for this week's text, it's just Ephesians chapter 1, or chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Ephesians 2, 11 to 14, 
that is found on your pew Bible on page 900, 976, 976. Follow along with me as I read and then I'll pray. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, there are glorious truths here. There's one command here that we would remember just how far we were from Christ. That we would remember that we were alienated and strangers. We didn't understand your covenants of promise. But your blood, the blood of your son has brought us near. And so we pray that we would see how these truths are meant to encourage our weary hearts. So strengthen us, Holy Spirit, by your strength, in your power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, our sermon has two points today. The first point is this. Remember how far from Christ you were. Remember how far from Christ you were. And secondly, verse 13, know how near to Christ you are. Remember how far you were. Secondly, know how near you are. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. This is the only command in this whole section all the way down uh, through uh, verse 22. It's call to remember. Now notice it's not even a call to, to do something, to actively go and do something. It's not a call to serve someone. Uh, uh, the only call here is to remember something. And you see it repeated there in verse 12, but that's just to pick back up after the sort. And it's so it's sort of bracketed there. That, that second verb is not there in the Greek. The, the main verb is there just to remember. It's a call to remember where they once stood before God. And then he gets detailed here. Well, what specifically are they to remember? That at one time, you Gentiles, Gentile means anyone who's not Jewish, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by hands. Remember, he wants to say, before he even gets into what they're supposed to remember, he's hinting at, he's getting at what they were before Christ and what the Jewish people refer to these Gentile believers as. You see, Jewish people had a distinguishing mark about them. Uh, at least the males did. They were called the circumcision. And then it's apparently they, are dismissive, they dismissively refer to the rest of the world as the uncircumcision. You catch that here? If you're Jewish, they kind of have this pride about them that we are the circumcision party. And all you other folks are the uncircumcision party. If you're new to the teachings of the Bible, this might strike you as odd. Why would people distinguish themselves in an elitist fashion based on something as private as 
circumcision. Don't miss that. That's, that's an interesting thing, right? Because, here's the reason, because it was a sign that set the Jewish people apart from the world. It marked them off from the Gentiles. It says we are not like the rest of the world. Not, we, we don't worship multiple gods. We worship the one true God, Yahweh. And he's commanded this in his word. And so we are marked off, set apart, separated from the world. And what's clear here and in other parts of the scriptures, in Acts and in Galatians especially, in Colossians, it's clear that the Jewish leaders were haughty about this distinction rather than humble that God would choose them and give them a sign of his covenant with them. They weren't supposed to be puffed up and proud about God's sovereign choice. If you flip back to the very beginning of your Bible, Genesis chapter 17, you see where circumcision is instituted. Now, Genesis 17, Genesis, the very first book of your Bible. I'm going to read Genesis 17, verses 7 to 14. Genesis 17, 7 says this. God speaking to Abraham, he says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to, off, to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Just stop. If you remember last week when Andrew was preaching, he preached from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Here is that land promise reiterated. Verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after me, after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant." Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Church, this seems to be an act which the Jewish people kept. Uh, they heard this word, this portion of the covenant, and as is custom even to this day, Jewish boys at eight days old are circumcised. You see, this is actually a gracious act of God to make a nation marked off that would reveal his character, his will, and reveal his glory. But as I said earlier, the Jewish leaders, instead of being humbled by God's sovereign choice of them, many of them became puffed up and proud in this distinction. And so they condescendingly referred to the Gentiles, in some cases, as dogs. Or in this case, verse 11, as the uncircumcision. But Paul is clear here, going back to Ephesians chapter 2, that their circumcision is what? It's only by hands. 
It's only by hands. Well, the question arises, and how else does one get circumcised if not by someone else's hands? The circumcision of the flesh was a sign to the circumcision of the heart, the cutting out of the old man to make room for the new man, the Christ, the Son of the living God, and be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. So if you want to jot this down to, to where do we see this circumcision pointing to of the flesh, pointing to a greater circumcision of the heart, you can look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, the very end of the first book of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6 says this, And Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. You see, the circumcision of the flesh was a pointer to the circumcision of the heart, that God might take what is old and make room for what is new. It's a sign, a pointer to the new birth, being born again and being a new creation in Christ. Paul's making clear here to this Gentile church that the Gentiles were largely not part of these promises. They had no idea that God was communicating with his creation in very specific ways, giving them signs and prophets and promises. And so now all that follows in verse 12 are five implications of not being part of the covenant people of God. Paul lists them out here. He wants them to remember this. So in our English translation, we get a helpful reminder there. That word repeated again, remember. So remember these five things. Remember that you were separated from Christ. The Christ is the Messiah. Our, 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 the Greek word for Messiah is Christ. Messiah being the Hebrew word. The Christ is the title of the anointed king. He is a long-awaited for promised Messiah spoken about by the prophets. And Gentiles did not know about these messianic promises. Well, secondly, they're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were not in God's covenant people where they learned and grew up from a young age. Where they learned about these promises of God. But thirdly, they were strangers to the covenants of promise. See, the covenants of promise is meant to give the Jewish community and those grafted in to the Jewish community hope in a world that is antagonistic against him. The covenants of promise, at least the ones of promise, are there's, there's five or six or seven, depending on uh, your interpretation of the covenants. But there's at least three that are meant to give promises for life everlasting for these Gentiles. So one, the first one is Genesis 12, 2 to 3. Or 1 to 3, which Andrew preached on last week. And God says to Abram, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Paul's saying here that you were strangers to this covenant. And secondly, the Davidic covenant first found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Where God is going to establish a forever king and have a forever kingdom through the lineage of David. That covenant is what Nathan uh, read in our call to worship. 
So Isaiah 55 verse 3 reiterates 2 Samuel 7. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love of David. So you have the Abrahamic covenant. You have the Davidic covenant. And then you have the new covenant. So Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33 says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Those are kind of the foundations of the covenants. And you see in other places in Zechariah, uh, in Hosea, in Malachi, in other prophets where these covenants are reiterated. But this is kind of the, the foundation of these covenants. And so Paul's saying, you didn't know anything about these covenants that are meant to give you hope in this world. And so he moves on to one of the implications of not knowing these covenants of promise. Having no hope. They had no hope. They had no idea why they were on this, in this world. And they had no idea what they were going to do when they died and departed from this world. And lastly, he says that they are without God in this world. They were hopeless because they did not have the true God. And we know about this church. They particularly worshiped a false god named Artemis. You can look at Acts chapter 17 or 18 and 19 and 20 to see that. You see, church, we, like the Ephesian church, were without Christ. And without Christ, there is no people of God to unite them. There's no promise, there's no hope, there's no God. And because of these realities, we were wandering in darkness, aimless, pursuing the passions of the flesh. We were, as he says earlier, dead in our trespasses and sins. We followed the course of this world. We followed the devil. We live in the passions of our flesh by carrying out the desires without God. And because of this, we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, church Israel was part of ethnic Israel. The church was part of, eth- sorry, Israel There's ethnic Israel and then there's spiritual Israel. But in large part, ethnic Israel did not comprise of a lot of those who were true Israel, truly believing the promises of God. And while they were not strangers to the covenants of promise, many of them did not have faith in the covenants of promise. While they were offered hope, they did not take hold of that hope. And while God loved Israel like a faithful husband, they were an adulterous bride breaking their end of the covenant, of the Mosaic covenant. So what is he saying here? If, I, I understand if you're a little bit unfamiliar with biblical theology, how a lot of this might be new to you. That's okay. Just keep coming back to church over and over again. And you'll understand these things more and more. It took me over a decade to understand this stuff. And I'm slow. He wants them to know that this Gentile, that these Gentile people, remember that they were outside of these promises. That's, he's saying that you were far from them. And he's saying to the Jews, in some sense, that they were near to them. Because they grew up hearing them 
over and over again. The question we must come to eventually in this text is, why all this remembering that you were apart from Christ? Why all this remembering that you were apart from Christ? Well, here's how we come in part to our answer, church. Is that we know the ultimate purpose of God for himself and for his creation is found in chapters one, in chapter 1, verse 6, 12, and 14 of Ephesians. So we are adopted as sons through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. And if you look at one twelve, we have an inheritance to the praise of his glory. In verse 14, we've been given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee to the praise of his glory. So somehow this command to remember what we used to be before Christ is working to the praise of the glory of God. And you keep moving through Ephesians 1.18. We see more reasoning for our purpose in this world is that God wants the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened that we may know the hope to which he's called us to, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable greatness of his power. You see, all God's redemption has a grand purpose. That his redeemed people would give him praise for his glorious grace. That we would see just how gracious God is. And that we would turn around and give him praise for his glorious grace. And one way to help us see how gracious God is, is to remember how wicked we were apart from Christ. And that's what the apostle is doing here. Remember what you were like when you were far off from Christ, before you were redeemed. When you were a slave to this world and not a slave to Christ. You see another purpose there in chapter 2, verse 7. Just look up a couple verses. God's doing all this. Another way he puts it is this in chapter, in verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So with all his grand purposes in mind, church, the apostle is saying to us, God is saying to us, remember where you were so that you can enjoy where you are. He's not saying, forget what you were apart from Christ. No, he's saying, remember what you were. It's not the only command. In fact, the bulk of the commands to rejoice in God's glorious grace isn't to remember your former life. But church, when we come upon it in a text, we have to focus on it. It's a way to remember, to rejoice in God and to see and behold his immeasurable kindness to you in Christ Jesus. Is to remember your old way. And see, Paul does this on several occasions in the scriptures regarding himself. Uh, I've already mentioned Acts and Galatians. You can go there to see how he remarks how he was a persecutor of the church, a reviler of the church. And then he meets Jesus. And his whole life is radically changed. Church, it's a good practice to do. I became a Christian when I was at the age of 16. Uh, A friend of mine, Scott, and his family started sharing the gospel with me. An hour, a year and a half of sharing the gospel with me, bringing me to church, bringing me to youth group. Seeing their family 
have a Christian witness. And the Lord saved me when I was 16. But I remember what it was like to be without God. To question him. To want to know what is the purpose of this world. To hear his commands and not give a rip what he said. Because I wanted to follow my own ways. It's not my main go-to when I need encouragement in this world. But it's a go-to. And it's helpful. And so Paul here is saying, remember what you used to be like. If you don't have a testimony like, like mine, if you're one of the maybe 60% who raised their hand and came, became a Christian, um, and maybe some of you, like Ruth, became a Christian when they were five. I wonder, when you come across, come across texts like this, I wonder how you, how you read them. I've always thought it's been helpful. Like, Lord, in your divine providence, I'm really thankful that I can look back to remember what life was like before Christ. Uh, But brothers and sisters, I know that many of you barely remember uh, not believing at all. We know theologically that at some point you became a Christian, right? You don't just gradually become uh, born again. But I wonder if you ever struggle with texts like this. John Piper, who became a Christian, doesn't really remember a time of not uh, believing. He says... Or he became a Christian at a very young age. He says this. Again, this is for you brothers and sisters who became a believer at a very young age. He says, if you like me trusted Christ as your savior when you were very young, you might be tempted to say here, I have nothing to remember. I have only known faith. I have no great conversion story. I don't believe Paul wrote this text just for people with dramatic conversion stories. He is writing it for all Gentiles to urge us to reflect on what our plight would be apart from the mystery of Christ, which makes us fellow heirs of grace. And the plight is simply and awfully being without God and therefore without hope. So Piper is saying that this text too applies to you. The Apostle Paul knows he's writing to Christians. Just think of of Timothy who became a Christian at a young age from his grandmother and his mother, Lois and Eunice, teaching him the scriptures. I asked a few of our uh, church members about this question who I knew grew up in a believing home and became Christians at a very young age. Some Some of who can't even remember when they became a believer. And so I thought it'd be helpful to quote to you what some of them wrote. So Andrew Evans says this about texts like Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 to 13. He says, I also view those passages as an encouragement to fight my sinful flesh. My old man that keeps sticking his head up. The old man has lost his dominion and power but not his presence. The fight against my flesh reveals what I would have been if not converted at a young age. Hopeless and separated from God. What a good word. The old man, when he pops up, says, hey, you want to know what Christ is like? What life is like without Christ? It's like this, except unhinged and unfurled and just released. Josiah Sherrill said this, I remember when I was seven and when I repented of my sins, but it was still very young for me. I remembered feeling the weight of my sin and the reality of hell waiting for me without Christ. However, I never remembered a time when I actually did not know the gospel and care about the things of God. The way I read these passages is still in light of my salvation at seven years old. I think of amazing grace in the line which says, How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. 
I think of how amazing God's grace was to me as a little seven-year-old. And I will be singing of that same grace for eternity. So yes, God did save me at a young age. But until I repented of my sins at seven, I was separated from the hope of God. And the only reason I was saved at such a young age is because of God's providential grace in my life. And Jessica Evans says this. Thanks for asking, she said. I struggled in college because I didn't have some cool conversion story. But then was reminded in Romans that all have fallen short and that the wages of sin is death. So then it was more of a realization that it actually didn't matter if my life looked decent or that I came to faith at a young age. Because I knew that according to the scriptures that I was once dead in my sin and became alive in Christ. So no matter how short my former life or how put together it looked, I was literally dying without Christ. And that's the amazing reality of what it means to become a new creation. And that is our hope, our life, our true life. Amen. Good word, Andrew, Jessica, Josiah. So three points of application for you if you became a Christian at a very young age. One is be grateful. Let me save you the, the, the season that Jessica went to when she was maybe envying those who had a, a cooler conversion story. I'm sure if you talk to Keenan, if you talk to me, if you talk to, to Katie, others, John and Lorna, Ken, those who became Christians at a later age, we wouldn't say we wish we could do all that over again. <laughs> so, so don't be tempted to envy anyone who has a quote-unquote dramatic conversion story. It's honestly horrible to live without Christ. It's lonely. You question everything. You have no anchor to ground what in the world you're doing here. And so you just reach for anything. And then that fails you. And you reach again for anything and that fails you. So brothers and sisters, if you became a believer at a young age, talk to me, talk to Ken. Talk to Art, Kathleen, Zamir, Nick. So many of us who became believers when we were older. It's lonely. It's scary. Remember Tim- Timothy speaking, uh, Paul speaking to Timothy in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1 verse 5. So thankful for Lois and Eunice. His mother and grandmother teaching him the scriptures at a young age. There is no distinction between those who are apart from those who have lived a long time apart from Christ and those who maybe became a believer even at the age of four or five. Secondly, mainly to parents here, don't be embarrassed by indoctrinating your children with the scriptures. Don't be embarrassed by pouring the scriptures into your children. I remember one time when Brooklyn was little, um, we used to teach her to to praise the Lord. She'd throw her hands up like this. She'd praise the Lord. (laughs) It was cute. When she was 13. Just kidding. (laughs) When she was like two or three and we taught all of our kids to do that to some degree. I remember my grandfather saying... Laughing and said, well, that's, that's some indoctrination you have there. And he meant it in, in a negative way. 
And uh, I said something back to my grandfather like, uh, you see, we're, we have like roots in Brooklyn, New York, so just bear with me. So I said something back to him. I said, would you rather me indoctrinate with money and business, grandfather? Which he appreciated. That's, how, that's, that's our love language. You see, if you're going to indoctrinate your kids with something, they're going to learn something. They're going to hold on to something. So give them the scriptures now. Pray that they become Christians at a young age. I'm so encouraged by our midweek gatherings how often I hear uh, people pray for the young, uh, our, uh, the, young, um, the young folks in our church to pray that they become Christians at a young age. And thirdly, uh, read these texts, as Andrew said, remembering your old man. So remember what you could be apart from Christ. All right. Second point in the sermon is know how near to Christ you are. Of course, the apostle doesn't want us to merely reflect on what life without Christ is. And so we have this beautiful text, verse 13. We have the rest of it. We'll get to it in a couple weeks. There's a drastic shift now enters the text. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, previously the Gentiles who were separated from Christ and all the promises of God and all the hope of God have now been brought near. There is only one way that could have happened. There's only one way to be far off and to be brought near. And as he says, look at there, he says this. He says, you're in Christ Jesus at the beginning of verse 12. There's only one, for, one way for that to happen. By the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ. And, and now he's saying, now you are near. And he's saying you're near because you're in Christ. You're near, you're exposed to the promises. You're in the covenant community, the church of God. Because you are in Christ. And he's speaking to Christians here now. So he says, remember where you were so you can enjoy where you are. Church, the bitter taste of life without Christ makes life with Christ all the sweeter. They are now part of this new community that is better than the commonwealth of Israel. Where God is taking two people, Jews and Gentiles, he's making them one. To have a people from every tongue, tribe and nation. That people all across the globe would enjoy the riches of his grace to the world in Christ Jesus. And there's only one way this happens. It's through a crucified Savior. Through his blood. Hebrews makes this abundantly clear in Hebrews 9, 11 to 15. We once had no access to God. Hebrews 9, 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands... That is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves. But by means of his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons. With the ashes of a heifer. Sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more. 
Well, the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purified our conscience from dead works to serving the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. We needed a perfect Savior with perfect, pure blood to be the sacrifice. And it is only by his blood that we become in Christ and therefore are near to his promises in his covenant community. That what amazes me about this gospel story. That while we were, yes, dead in our sins... While we rebelled against a holy God, and while, yes, Christ died for us, rose from the dead, and offers forgiveness forgiveness to anyone who would come to him by faith, is that Jesus came to this world knowing that he would pay this kind of price for us. So he knew that to gain a people for himself from every tongue, tribe, and nation, he knew that he would be crucified. He knew that the sacrifice, once for all sacrifice, would require his blood. And so he makes this very clear. The gospel writer Matthew, in Matthew 26, 2 to 4, says this. Jesus is speaking. You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the place of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. And Jesus was not surprised that this antagonistic world, full of children of wrath, that as God incarnate, he would come down. He knew that most of them would look on him and revile him. Friends, that's our story. We heard God. We didn't love him because we are children of wrath. But at one point, we heard this gospel message. And we became children of wrath to children of God. Sons and daughters of the Most High. This is the story of the gospel. That we are a blood-bought people. And remembering who we were sweetens who we are now in Christ or remembering who you could have been dear Christian who became a Christian at a young age sweetens that God spared you from a life without him John Owen says this this is the great mystery of the gospel and the blood of Christ that those who sin every day should have peace with God all their days And that's our story now. Yes, we still sin. And if you are a guest with here, we have, we are not proud about our standing in Christ. It is only by his grace that we've been ushered in. We heard a similar message at some point, whether it was a parent sharing with us at our bedside when we were five years old, or whether it was a preacher like me exhorting you to forsake your old man, your old self, and come to Christ. All of us who are members of this church have a similar story of being saved by the grace of God when we realize that our sin has separated us from God 
And that our Savior waits and calls us and even demands that we come to him and believe in him by faith. So if you're not yet a Christian, let me encourage you. Make today the day of your salvation. Come to the Lord now. After, after service, find someone who invited you here. Find one of the Christians here and ask them, hey, what is it like to follow Jesus? And I'm sure they'd love to give up whatever they have planned for this afternoon and tell you about that story. You see, church, his immeasurable greatness now has taken those who are far off and brought them near to the promises. So near that they are no longer separated from Christ, but now are in Christ. Dear beloved Christian, to have Christ dwelling in your heart by faith, to be rooted and grounded in love, and to be strengthened to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. There is nothing better in this world. So if you're tempted this past week to hold on to some better promise, something else, you have been given all you need in Christ. He loves you dearly. He has loved you from before the foundations of this world. Do not put your hope in a circumstance change. Do not put your hope in a spouse, a friend, a child, a work situation. Put it in Christ. That is what God wants you to do in these verses. In conclusion, let each of us remember That each of us as saints in this church are precious blood-bought saints in the eyes of Jesus. Let our unique testimonies of divine grace be quickly on our lips in this church. And we do that, church. If we are quick to talk about how we are saved by the blood of Christ and it was not of ourselves, that none of us can boast, you know that will do for the, the culture of our church? We'll look at each other more and more through the lens of Jesus. And so any hard feelings we might have toward each other will be kind of untangled, will be dissolved because of the love of Christ and the grace of Christ. We will begin to see what is most fundamentally true about each one of us, that we are in Christ and we are saved by grace alone and upheld by the grace of God alone. Church, after service, let me just encourage you, ask someone when they became a Christian, how they became a Christian, and what it's like being a Christian. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the various testimonies we have in this church. We thank you for saving the Apostle Paul. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. That is good news. Good news. We're celebrating and praising you in this life and for eternity to come. Help us to believe that more wholeheartedly. Create us, create in us a church that doesn't distinguish people based on anything, but sees us all as blood-bought sinners. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.